If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10. You see there that our primary text will be Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18, which are on the back of your order of service. But if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10, our passage from this morning. Now, some of you are thinking, you've seen the screen and you're wondering, what in the world is that? Who is it? It's a Picasso, right? The three musicians. Put this picture up here, not to talk about what's actually in the picture, the the three musicians, but as an illustration, it is said that Picasso was for American artists the primary figure of the 20th century. He was the one who defined modern art. Whatever modern art is, this person says Picasso defined it. The point here is that Picasso cast a large shadow over many of the artists who came after him. Many tried to emulate him. They followed his lead in style. They attempted to start with Picasso and his approach to art and move beyond what he started. The American artist Jackson Pollock sometimes started his own work with shapes drawn from Picasso's work, and then he would go on to fill in the artwork and make it his own, adding his own colors and his own expressions into the piece. Artists found in Picasso something that inspired them, something to imitate. Now, I don't mean to suggest for a nanosecond that this devotional challenge is a Picasso. All right? That's not what I'm getting at. What I am wanting to say here is what Picasso did is he, he painted, and there were others who came after him and painted in a way that was inspired by what he did. What I want to do this evening is I want to paint some pictures. Some pictures that we will look at in our mind's eye together and then go from here, perhaps seeking to put into practice the exact things that we picture. But maybe for some of the pictures, you will look at them and you will say, no, I'm not going to do that, or that doesn't apply to my life in the way that Pastor Greg suggested, but I see where that was going, and I'm going to paint my own picture. I'm going to paint my own portrait of love. So what I want us to do tonight is think about continuing on what we thought about this morning. What does love look like? What does it look like in our own lives to love those around us? And I want to paint some pictures taking cues from Scripture, as to what this love might look like and encourage you to think about what will love tangibly look like in your lives. If you are going to go somewhere in the Bible to look for a picture of love, where would you go? The Gospels. Pictures of love given to us by Christ. In his 
self-sacrifice on the cross, the greatest picture of love that has ever been on display. Christ as the servant, pictured as the servant who washed the feet of his disciples. Another demonstration of love. The good Samaritan, which we heard this morning. Maybe the parable of the lost son and the demonstration of love shown by the father as that prodigal son came back home. Perhaps First John 4, which we read this morning and again this evening. But probably none of you thought, and I would not have thought on my own either, to go to Leviticus to find pictures of love. But that's where we want to go. We want to go to Leviticus chapter 19. Either turn to Leviticus 19 in your scriptures or simply go to it there on the back of your order of service because that is actually, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Stay in Luke. We still want to talk about Luke briefly before we get to Leviticus, but we're going, we are going to Leviticus. I promise you that. I apologize. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get into what these portraits of love look like together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to you this evening, Father, we want to take our cues from you in what love ought to look like in our lives. Father, we don't want to be the creators. We don't want to be the painters or the originators. We cannot do that. Your word is clear. We love because you have first loved us. And so, Father, we want to follow in your pattern of love. We want to understand how it is that you desire love to be reflected in our lives. And I pray that you would help us to think clearly and faithfully and practically from your word this evening as we think about what love will look like in our lives as we leave this place later this evening. God, I commit this time to you and ask that you would use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I I am going to go ahead and read Leviticus 19 because it's there on the order of service to set our cues before we, we move on. Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. As we think about these words from the holiness code, God's expectation for his people to live out their holiness from the Old Testament, as we think through these and think about how do these paint for us a picture or portraits of love, I want us to do two primary things. First, I want to make some orienting observations. That is, why go here? Why deal with this? Why go to Leviticus of all places if we're going to think about love? And then I want to look at multiple portraits of love. Now, if you are in Luke chapter 10, I ask you to go at the beginning, read with me verses 38 through 42. This is the passage immediately following the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The first orienting observation that I want to make is what I'm calling the Mary and Martha effect. The Mary and Martha effect. And this is particularly for you if you were not here this morning. If you were here this morning, then you understand this already. You heard Pastor Steve declare this. But if you were not, this is an important point for us to take away. We are going to be thinking about what love can practically look like in our lives. But we dare not be mistaken that it is our practice of love that somehow puts God at our disposal or in our debt. And Luke uses the account of Mary and Martha to make this abundantly clear. Unless he keeps us from going too far astray in the account of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We learned this morning that the parable of the Good Samaritan is intended to teach us to Love our neighbor. And it's very clear, even from the parable itself, that this loving of our neighbor is not finally and fully a means to our own justification, our own being made right with God. We cannot love one another and so be made right with God. It's not possible. But lest the reader be tempted to go that direction from the parable of the Good Samaritan, Mary, the account of Mary and Martha functions as a hedge to tell the reader, don't go there. How? Well, you have Martha here who is serving, and she is about doing good things. She is about loving the Lord. She is about loving those who are with them. And she is frustrated that her sister is not helping her. And Jesus declares that what Martha is doing is, is good, but Mary has chosen the one thing that is necessary to fall at the feet of Jesus. 
So lest we think as we go on that we somehow make much of ourselves by loving one another, the parable of the Good Samaritan combined with the account of Mary and Martha tell us ultimately what we must do is fall at the feet of Jesus. And only by doing that and only after doing that can we actually demonstrate the love that the Lord calls us to demonstrate. So the Mary and Martha effect holds us back from going too far if we were to be tempted to go astray here. The New Testament, another orienting observation as far as why Leviticus, the New Testament draws an explicit connection between the Old Testament law and love. Again, we see this in Luke 10. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God. And then later, And your neighbor as yourself. The law tells us, Love God and to love our neighbor. And in Matthew... Jesus says that these are the first two commandments. These are the greatest commandments. To love God and to love our neighbor. And Jesus himself points us to the law to communicate to us that we are to love one another. The golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Is this not one way to think about what love looks like? What we would want others to do for us, do to them. Communicate love, demonstrate love in that way. And then Jesus says, on these, or excuse me, for this is the law and the prophets. Over and over, there is this connection between what the law has to teach and love. So it's appropriate for us, at least in part, to go to the law to look to see what it has to say to us about love. The New Testament draws these connections. Another orienting observation, the uses of the law. We know that as New Testament Christians, under the new covenant that God has established in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the old way of doing things. So what use is the law to us today? Well, the primary use of the law as laid out throughout the New Testament is to point us to our Lord. Over and over, when the apostles are preaching the gospel from the Scriptures, where are they preaching it from? They're preaching it from the Old Testament. They're preaching it from the law and from the Psalms and from the prophets. Jesus points the apostles back to the law and the prophets and explains to them all the things in them concerning Himself. The end of the Gospel of Luke the ultimate purpose of the law is to drive us to Christ. There are also other benefits or other uses of the law. These were picked up by the reformers in the 16th century. Three uses of the law. One is the civil use of the law. That is... The law functions to restrain sin. It simply teaches us what is right and what is wrong, demonstrates the reality that if you do what is wrong, there is a consequence. And in this way, it functions to restrain evil. 
to simply hold back the press of evil. This is what Luther and others called the civil use of the law. Now, these next two uses, the the terms are kind of fancy, and I'll give them to you in case you're interested in them, but don't let the terms distract you. The, The first one is called the pedagogical use of the law. The pedagogical use of the law. And that is, whatever pedagogical means, right? That use of the law is that it functions as a mirror. The law stands before each and every one of us as a mirror. And as we look into the law, and it reflects back to us a reflection, the reflection that it reflects back is not pretty. The law teaches us that as Isaiah said, we all like sheep have gone astray. The law teaches us that we don't do what the Lord would have us to do. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We do not love the Lord our God as we ought. The law teaches us this. Functions as a mirror to show us who we really are. The third use of the law is called the didactic use of the law. The didactic use of the law. And this is the law shows us the way in which we are to go. How is it that we are to live? Particularly for those of us who are believers, as we have been born again by the Holy Spirit, how is it that God would have us to live? In the Ten Commandments and other aspects of the law that that lay out the morality that affect these these other applications, teach teach us somewhat of how we are to live. And that's how I want us to think for just a few moments about the law and love. How is it that Leviticus 19 shows us, gives us a picture, gives us multiple pictures of how we ought to go in this way of love? Our goal here is not to create a new set of laws. I'm In these pictures that I'm going to, to paint, my goal here is not to say, All right, see this picture. You must do this. This is exactly how love ought to look in your life. I want us to see the undergirding principles in these laws that we read in Leviticus 19 and consider potential application of these principles to our own lives. When we think about how we ought to love, if we think of love as a duty as a requirement that we begrudgingly have to go after, our attitude will be disgruntled. What must I do to love my neighbor? My goal here is not to tell you what you must do to love your neighbor. That should not be our attitude. What must I do? Our attitude ought to be anticipatory. It must, it ought to be Reflected in the question, what can I do? How can I love my neighbor? And it's in that line of thinking, how is it that we can possibly love our neighbors? What does it look like? That's how I want us to think about these portraits of love. Leviticus 19 actually shows us a number of ways in which we ought to love our neighbor. These verses show 
some of the ways God expected the Israelites to love one another. Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And there is a sense in which everything that the Lord has said up to this point and what we have read and even elsewhere in Leviticus 19 is a fleshing out of what it would have looked like for the Israelites to have loved one another. And so we can learn the way in which we ought to go in the way in the ways that we should love one another and love those around us. The first picture that we have here is a picture of generosity. A picture of generosity. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall not leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This is incredibly foreign to many, if not all of us. We don't own vineyards. We aren't farmers by and large. So what is there for us here? Well, in this agrarian society, this was the primary means that God had established to care for the poor or the destitute. So we are compelled to think in our own context, how is it that we can care for the needs of those around us? How is it that we can be generous and so demonstrate love? Perhaps the farmer reads this passage and he says, well, it's not practical or it's not appropriate in my setting for me to leave portions for people to come through and pick. That's just not going to happen. But what I am going to do in order to be generous is I'm going to collect my harvest and I'm going to take a portion of my harvest and instead of of squeezing out all of the profits that I can from this harvest, I'm going to set aside a portion of that harvest and I'm going to give it to a food bank or a soup kitchen, or some other local ministry free of charge where they can use this food to provide for the needs of those who don't have what I have. I had the opportunity in in the year 2000 to spend two and a half months in India. Poverty like I had never seen poverty before. Poverty like I have never seen poverty since. The folks who we were working with, who lived there regularly, they had developed the practice of showing generosity to the poor and the destitute by way of taking their leftovers after they had eaten out at a restaurant. And instead of taking them home and putting them in the refrigerator in order to be heated up in the microwave and enjoyed another day... He would simply give the food in a package to a beggar sitting on the side of the road. Now, for most of us, we don't encounter beggars that often. But maybe in your context, you do in your work environment. And as you're going to lunch, one of the ways that you can show generosity for the poor and the destitute is to pack up the extra of what it was that you didn't eat and simply give it to someone who is going in want. Maybe one of the things that comes to mind here is the folks who stand on the side of the road and have a cardboard sign and they say, we'll work for food. And many of us are skeptical about the need there, whether or not we should give. And it's impossible for us to determine in an instant 
whether there is an actual need there or not. But let's suppose for a moment that there is. One of the things that we could do is we could intentionally in, intentionally intend. We could intentionally plan to be generous in these situations by, in our car, simply having a few extra water bottles, having a box of granola bars stuffed under the passenger side seat. When we see that man or that woman in that situation, roll down the window and give them a bit of the food that we have, that we have intentionally set aside for this particular moment. Many of us have neighbors. We all have neighbors, right? And for most of us, our, our neighbors are in decent shape. They're not in the category of the poor and the destitute. That doesn't mean that we cannot still be generous to them and demonstrate our love to them by our generosity. For example, you could take some of your leftovers to them and simply bless them with a nice gift. Now, you have to be careful here, right? Because sometimes leftovers aren't really all that appealing. But suppose, for example, you've had a birthday party and you have a third of the cake left over. You have an option. You can save that cake for lunch tomorrow, dinner the next day, or you could cut it up. Distribute it to the neighbor next door, the neighbor across the street, and simply bless them with a gift of generosity. Many of you were very gracious in the clothing drive, and you are gracious in giving to our benevolence fund every month. Some of you, you're not farmers, but you have skills, perhaps skills working with your hands or professional skills and abilities And you could be generous with your time in giving your time to support some sort of ministry that is out there that could use the gift of your time or your services as an expression of love. Many of you are web savvy, and it wouldn't take much more than a Google search to find a ministry and you could examine it, probe it, Find out if it's legit and so forth. And if it is, begin to use your skills in some way to serve them. For example, I mentioned that in the fall of, or in the summer of 2000, I had the opportunity to be in India. I was over there with a group called Engineering Ministries International. And this group is, their, their primary purpose is to support Christian missionaries around the world. And the way they do this is they encourage engineers and architectural professionals to simply donate their services to help design buildings, water treatment facilities, and all kinds of things that missionaries need to love on the people whom they serve. Now, most of you are not engineers, but that's an example. There, I'm sure, are other opportunities out there where you could be generous with your time and with your energy to demonstrate love to those who need it. Verses 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, many of these are one-to-one. 
What I mean is, he says, don't steal. The application for us is, don't steal, right? We don't need to think outside the box too much to think about how these apply to our lives. But there are some outside-the-box ways that we can, we can think about these applying. One is, is very easy and obvious for many, if not all of you, but it, if you are a on-the-clock worker, that is, your job requires you to punch the clock and punch out. One application of do not steal is, obviously, do not steal time from your employer. I once worked at a Chick-fil-A in Lafayette, Indiana, and occasionally there would be individuals who would come into the restaurant and they would sign in to start their work hour, but then they would go back and take off their clothes, or not take off their clothes, excuse me, they would take off their jackets because it was cold there and get ready for the work day, and they would spend, you know, five, ten minutes getting ready already on the clock. Then they would do something similar at the end of the day. They would get ready to go and say their goodbyes and so forth and then go punch out of the clock. Well, in this particular environment, they were effectively stealing that time from my boss. This is a way of not loving those around us. Stealing credits for others' ideas. Right? So you're at work or in some other context and somebody has a great idea. And you think, hey, I can use that, and I'll pass that off. And you fail to give credit to the one who deserves the credit for that particular idea, whatever it may be. You have stolen something from that individual. It says here, you shall not deal falsely. The applications of loving for us to not deal falsely is Full disclosure, if we are selling something, a car, a house, and we know that there are problems with it, full disclosure of the issues that are there. For many of you, this is a no-brainer. But for some of you, maybe it's a challenge. Another way that we can deal falsely is dealing falsely with those that we don't particularly like. So we put on one face in front of them, and we so deal falsely with them. We give them a false impression of their position before us. But behind their back, we are running them down the road. This is dealing falsely. Husbands. I will close with this one. Do not steal time from your wives. What do I mean by this? Thinking here primarily of those within my own demographic But again, I'm painting a picture, and you can paint it in your own life. Gentlemen, if your wife has the opportunity to spend time with her peers, other ladies here at the church or elsewhere, and it is a time for the ladies to be together, don't steal that time from her that she has to fellowship with her friends by forcing her to take the kids with her. Keep the kids yourself. Take two hours and watch them. It won't kill you to change a diaper. Don't steal that time from your wife. Give it to her. Let her use it. Let her be refreshed by it. There are a whole 
another list of ways that we could think about loving one another from these verses. My challenge, my encouragement to each of you and to myself is to reflect on these and ask the Lord, Lord, how is it that you are directing me in the moments of life to love those around me? Oftentimes, our love is not demonstrated in the grand moments of life. The kind of love that the Lord calls us to is demonstrated in a thousand small moments of life. What will those small moments be in yours? And how is the Lord causing or challenging you to think about how you will love even in those small moments that he gives you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to take our offering, Father, we give to you because you have given to us. And Father, this is how we want to love. We want to love because you have loved us. And so, Father, as we continue to reflect on the Scriptures and as we go to what you have set before us this week, Father, I pray that it would be ever present in the front of our mind the question, how is it that the Lord would have me to love in this moment? Father, I pray that you would... Help us to be people who demonstrate with our lives and communicate with our lips the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.